Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Range Project. This is your host, Chris McGrory, and I'm a student athlete at Harvard looking to have insightful conversations covering a wide range of disciplines with some of the brightest and most unique classmates of mine at Harvard. Today, two history nerds and friends of mine, Matt Thomas and Garrett Walker, share their love for this subject through stories of President Theodore Roosevelt and along the way, give an inside look at their college experiences and personal interests. So who are today's guests exactly? Matt Thomas is my roommate and baseball teammate, whose leadership and activities touch all corners of campus, from peer advising to teaching to athletics. Garrett Walker, a hilarious mutual friend of ours, is read well beyond his years and has applied the lessons of history's finest into how he organizes his life and through his charity work with effective altruism. Recording my first podcast with two of my buddies made it a blast. I hope you enjoy and maybe even learn a thing or two. Without further ado, here we go. One, two, three, do it! I would love to start asking you boys, you could have come to Harvard studying anything, and I'd like to hear if you guys had an idea of what you were going to study when you arrived on campus and explain what you study now and why, why you study it and maybe give a brief introduction so we can place a voice with uh, a name. I'd love to. So I'm Matt Thomas, uh, junior at Kirkland House, proud roommate of Chris McGrory. Um, we have a strict bedtime of 10 p.m., lights out at that time, no exceptions. Uh, I study what's called social studies at Harvard, and uh, whenever I say that, people say, isn't that your fourth grade history class? And I say, yes. Um, but here, what it means for me is it's any number of different disciplines, but I study U.S. history and government. Um, and I had a pretty good idea that's what I wanted to do coming into college, just because it was my favorite subject in high school. Um, but I, I had no idea kind of what it, what it would look like once I got here. And it seems like I just can't, I found every semester I find myself taking a couple more U.S. history classes and, um, they're my, my favorite ones by far, I think for no other reason than I just find U.S. history really, really fun. Um, it's a blast to read all these crazy stories and the, the colorful characters that kind of brought us to where we are today. Um. And I think we'll get into some of them today, but just some of the wild, wild things that happened um, seem almost hard to believe. Um, and it seems like history, Garrett and I have a joke. It's that history never gets old uh, because I really never can kind of never get tired of learning about it. Sweet. Yeah. Um, my name is Garrett Walker. I'm also a junior uh, in Quincy House. I study history of the secondary in government. Um, Coming into Harvard, I was thinking the other way around, um, but met kids who concentrated in government and decided against it. Um, I actually, fun fact, first class I took here was Gov20 with one Matthew Thomas. Um, That's true. We had this, I don't know how you would describe <laughs> him, Matt. We had a TF who I always say was firm in his convictions and infirm in his English speaking abilities. Um, <laughs> So we 
sort of bonded over that experience. Um, and since then, I've also specialized more in U.S. history. I think history in general for me is a way to understand the world um, in a way that sort of just looking at current events doesn't really allow you to do. Um, but having a U.S.-centric focus specifically gives you the tools to understand the current moment that we're in, I think, much better than, say, studying ancient history. Although there's obviously something to be said for that as well. Um, so that, I think, has driven my selection of classes and my program study more broadly is just how I can make sense of the world and um, get the tools and instruments to be able to um, figure out where we are and why we got here. Okay, right. I, before we get to the, uh, the focus of today's talk uh, centered around U.S. history, I can't let you go by without elaborating on your interactions with some government concentrators. Now, without naming names, if there's anything that you'd like to, uh, like to elaborate on with that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always something different. It's, there are some who will say, um, I'm going to be president one day. And my response is always kind of, okay, um, don't really want to continue this conversation. <laughs> um, or it'll be, you know, I, I don't want to generalize because I have a lot of friends who are in government um, and are smart, you know, very knowledgeable and active and passionate. Um, but I think that there is also kind of just the stereotype of, oh, it's generally kind of policy related, not really sure what you want to do long-term versus I think every history concentrator and social studies concentrator I've met, I think are much more focused on history for the sake of history. And so that's, um, I think what drew me to history is a concentration in the first place and I've enjoyed it so far. So that's all I meant by that. No, uh, not going to incriminate myself any more than I have to. Here. I'd hate to put you in that position. Yeah. Would you, Matt, would you agree with the type of folks that you've uh, come across in social studies and history? Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I also enjoy social studies because um, everyone is extremely uh, radical and has very strong opinions and loves to let you know about them. So it makes for some really entertaining discussions, sections, and uh, sometimes we even all get dinner together and the conversation just keeps flowing. I can't not ask if there is a discussion in recent memory, maybe before we were all sent home, that, uh, that you got into with some of your uh, social studies peers. <laughs> yes. Um, well, they are very, they're very sad that we all had to go home and very worried about the coronavirus, but they do think that there is a potential for this to be the beginning of the cultural revolution where the proletariat finally overthrows the elites. Um, so they Sorry, think do we that, want the, just a button. We want the cultural revolution again. Is that a, we want that to be our future as, as a social studies major. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, speaking, I can't betray, I can't betray my, my concentration, but, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Yeah. No important clarification. This is where you get the, the sort of history versus social studies concentrator dichotomy already coming out here. Yeah. No, so, see, social studies, I feel like you can, yeah, it's like 
Social studies is where if you say like I'm a Bernie supporter, that is a pickup line. Like it's <laughs> great. It gets you really far. Incredible. That's, hey baby, do you want to come back up. to my place and champion the proletariat? <laughs> uh now we're having academic pickup lines. I love it. This is this is a good direction. This was exactly what I wanted to talk about. But no, uh for real, let's uh let's maybe get into what we discussed coming into uh, this this discussion and podcast, and that is our friend, I'll say, Theodore Roosevelt. It seems like in our uh, brief conversations before uh, this recording uh, that he was a name that kept coming up as having some of the most absurd stories connected with him. So... Uh, if Garrett or Matt have a favorite Teddy Roosevelt story oh. that you can kick us off with, God, uh, and um, please enlighten me. Favorite, yeah, it's they're going to come out individually, and I'll, I'm sure I'll have a better answer. But I think um, the one that sticks out to me right now is at one point when he was an ascendant figure in New York politics. Um, within 24 hours of each other, his wife and mother passed away. And he talked about this being the darkest day of his life. Um, and after that happened to him, took a break from politics and moved out to the Badlands of the Dakotas um, and basically just became a cowboy. This upper class kid who had asthma, um, who had no other connection to um, the West, just decided on a whim to head out there and find himself again. And so there are all kinds of stories about this, but the one that sticks out to me is at one point he was traveling down a river with a boat and woke up to find that thieves had stolen it. So instead of reporting it to the authorities or whatever else and never seeing the boat again, he and two of his friends built a boat out of um, whatever they could find. I think they chopped down a tree or something um, and sailed for three days straight to find the boat that had traveled downriver, um, apprehended the thieves, then rowed the boat back to the nearest sheriff station, which was like 100 miles away. And for some reason, Teddy's two people who were accompanying him weren't able to continue on that voyage. So he single-handedly kept the thieves on board and I think read Tolstoy to keep himself awake, which is just the most badass thing I think you can possibly <laughs> design. Like, I can't, nothing in my personal life could come close to what that must have been like. Um, so as soon as I read that, I was like, oh man, this is someone else. Like no one I've ever come into contact with. Give yourself some time, Gary. You're only, are you 21 yet? I'm 21. I turned 21 yesterday. Oh, happy belated birthday. Happy birthday, Garrett. Thank you. Um, anyway, Matt, what's your favorite Teddy story? Um, I think my favorite, and this is a pretty famous one, um, but is when he was going, when he was running for president in 1912. So after he'd been president twice, but then took four years off and then wanted to become president again, um, he was sitting outside of a hotel in an open car waiting to go give a speech at a rally. And um, an assassin came up and shot him point blank, um, right in the chest. And it just so happened to deflect off of his metal glass case. And he had a 50 page speech in his breast pocket. And that made it so the bullet only lodged in him um, instead of actually just killing him right there on the spot. 
Um, and so it's shocking enough that he like even survived this assassination attempt. But then when he got back up, uh, the doctors ordered him to the hospital and he refused saying it was, he had the speech to give and he was going to go give it. So sure enough, he got right back there in the car and they went to the speech venue and he was a little flushed and you could see the color drain from his face a little bit, but um, he finished the entire speech. And Gary, I know we're talking about this. You have some of the, the dialogue from that speech. Yeah. It, I'll have to pull it up. Give me a second. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a remarkable story because he was U.S. president first and I think said something like, I'm only going to run one term because he became vice president after McKinley was assassinated. Um, and then by the end of his first term, came to realize that that was a mistake. Um, but because he had sort of committed to it, he had to continue down that path. Um, and so he endorsed Taft as a result, who is from the Republican Party as well. But then over the course of the next few years, increasingly came to realize that Taft was no longer the best person to represent the Republican Party. So in 1912, which is a fascinating election for a lot of reasons, um, Wilson, Taft, and Roosevelt, and also Eugene Debs, who got like 2 million votes, all ran for president. Um, and basically, Teddy and Taft split the vote. And so Wilson, out of nowhere, basically just stole the election. Um, it was the one of the most interesting elections, I think, in U.S. history for that particular moment. And just so many, all, all three of them were progressive and were kind of hustling to outprogress the other two. Um, but it was just interesting to see how many different ways that these giants of U.S. history were interacting with each other in real time. Um, yeah, let me, I'm trying to find the... I'll, I'll give you a second to find that. And yeah. maybe Matt can help me better understand although he was under the Republican umbrella it seemed like very little about him was was committed to party politics and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that help me better understand what made him a Republican was he even is that even a good is that even a good categorization yeah um, great question actually um, so the 1912 election, like Garrett was talking about, he ran as a third party candidate for the Progressive Party. Um, and this is kind of a weird time in U.S. politics because it was after with Wilson, who was elected as Democrat, um, U.S. party politics would flip on its head to become more familiar where the Democratic Party we know today and the Republican Party we know today, they kind of swap policies in the middle of the 1910s, um, strangely enough. But Roosevelt actually was um, very committed and very very committed to his principles, um, so much so that he was kind of famous for, he had this really strange career path in getting to the presidency, um, and he made a lot of people upset. So, like, there's once he was the New York City police commissioner at one point and was, like, very, did a very great job, but, like, refused to kind of, um, kind of, like, kiss up to any people he really needed to please or play the politics game, and it eventually got him, like, run out of the job. Um, but one of the things I find most interesting is that the people in the Republican Party, like, thought he was... Uh, they just couldn't really control him because he just refused to kind of like give in um, at all. And so they were worried kind of about what to do with him. They were worried about his like ascent within the Republican Party because they thought that he would kind of change the Republican Party and take it directions that the heads of the party didn't want it to go. And so they put him as the vice president simply because they thought it was the most harmless position where he just he had no responsibility and wouldn't be able to do anything. 
Um, and it drove him nuts, like for like, I think it was a year, if that, that he was the vice president. Um, and there, like he talks about in his journal that it just, he was going crazy. He didn't have anything to do. Um, and so it just kind of happened by like, it, the plan worked perfectly. Like the Republicans got him exactly where he wanted. Um, this famous investigative journalist, Jacob Reese, I think is his name, um, talks about how like the Republicans were pretty satisfied with what, what it was looking like. And Teddy himself, um, he said like, I'm not doing any work and do not feel as though I was justifying my existence. Like, he was going crazy. Um, but then once McKinley was assassinated, um, he became the president um, accidentally and the, his whole party didn't even want him to at that point. Uh, so it was pretty fascinating. Like that's why he doesn't really align so well with either of the parties. There's a great quote from a senator where after the assassination, um, some Republican senator says, now we've got that damned cowboy as president. Um, and is, everyone's horrified at this point. Um, I'll also say specifically on the issue of characterizing Teddy as a Republican, it's important to note that the parties basically flip. First stage of that coming with FDR's New Deal, um, and then the second being with um, LBJ's Great Society, where previously there wasn't that much of a distinction between Republicans and Democrats ideologically, there was a lot of overlap. Um, and it was mostly based around kind of which part of the country you represented rather than specific social issues. But increasingly, the Democrats became the party of the worker um, and Republicans sorted more naturally into kind of big business. Um, but there are a couple examples of, for example, um, the anthracite coal strike of I think it was 1902 when Teddy Roosevelt for the first time in U.S. history um, basically called a meeting between the labor organizers and the owner of the coal mine, which would never have happened previously. Presidents regularly sent in um, troops to break up strikes and make sure that people would go back to work. Um, likewise, his square deal was all about making sure that people would have basic rights as workers. Um, he spent a lot of time um, making sure that the sort of food and products that people were getting were genuine. Um, so I would say, although he came under the Republican Party as a broad umbrella, it was not the Republican Party that we see today or that we've seen in the last 50 years. Um, it really was a very different party organization at that time. Um, I found the speech quote also he starts off the speech after being assassinated by saying friends i shall ask you to be as quiet as possible i don't know whether you fully understand that i've just been shot which is <laughs> the coolest way that you can start a speech maybe in recorded history i don't know but a pretty remarkable moment regardless <laughs> my god <laughs> yeah i think he also um stormed out of the republican national convention leading people in the Bull Moose Party in 1912, um, which it's very hard to imagine that kind of partisan disarray coming in 2016 or 2020. You imagine some politician getting up at the DNC and telling people to follow him out of the convention center. I'm not sure a lot of people would follow him. So I think it just speaks both to sort of the different time that we're observing and also the um, remarkable ability of Teddy to rally people around his cause. Yeah, and to that to that point, it seems like it seems like a lot can be learned, especially in today's political climate, from from leaders like Teddy, 
And I, I would love to know if in your history classes, in your social studies classes, are those parallels explicitly made? Are those things you explore personally? Are those, is that uh, different based on teacher to teacher? What's been your experience with how Harvard teaches these inherently political topics? Yeah, um, I would say at least personally, most if not all of the history classes I've taken have tried to apply it in some way to our current era. I took one class on Latin America in the U.S. Um, where the professor stopped one lecture and basically said, if you're going to buy drugs, make sure that they're fair trade. Um, and I remember thinking, God, Fox would have a field day with that. Um, so in short, yeah, I think everyone, all of the classes I've taken have come at history with a sense of kind of what can we learn from this and how can we apply it to our current um, era. But there's a great quote from Hegel, um, which goes as follows. The uh, owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. Minerva is the Roman equivalent of Athena, so the goddess of wisdom. Um, and that quote basically means we can't understand a current moment without being able to look at it in, in hindsight. Um, so while I think it's worth using history as much as we can to understand where we are in terms of passing judgment on what the factors were that led to Donald Trump's election, say, um, or a lot of the broader kind of right wing anxiety that has led to the surge of populism. I think it's much harder to say that we can definitively understand what led people to vote in the way that they did or um, support the candidates that they did. Um, that's at least my take. Matt, do you have any? Yeah. Idea? Well, I think one thing that's super interesting, um, especially like in the past month is just how much the economy is tanked. Um, I'm taking a class called the His American capitalism and this, our past two lectures have been about the great depression and then the new deal and the response and then world war two ultimately bringing the depression to a close. Um, and so we're kind of like directly our, teachers taking some time to directly look at the parallels there. Um, and it's been really interesting to kind of compare how uh, FDR's like unprecedented spending by the government to get the U.S. out of the depression, how like are, is Trump eating the lessons of that? Um, is, or is the current administration kind of following those footsteps? Or are they trying something different? Um, it's, been, it's been super interesting. And then also, I mean, in, that's my history class. My social studies classes, it's like you read Karl Marx in the first semester of being a social studies concentrator. Um, so applying that at all times and talking about how, like, if you look at the current situation, like how the poorest people are being hit the hardest and it's the big companies like the airlines that was in the headlines a couple of weeks ago for the big airlines being bailed out and the U S, um, kind of like coming to save the bigger corporations, whereas it's like the smaller, um, like smaller corporations, small businesses, um, and individuals who are being hit the hardest. So, uh, just for my personal curiosity, are you endorsing the Communist <laughs> Manifesto or capitalism? Uh, no, I, I can't. I can't endorse it all the way. Um, but uh, the Communist Manifesto, that one, I can't can't endorse. Capital, I think capital has some compelling arguments. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, it seems like Matt, you're taking some lessons from uh, from Teddy. He, you're not. You're uh, abandoning your uh, affiliations with the social studies department. <laughs> in what you really believe. If That's I, very admirable. I, uh, very I don't even admirable. know if I deserve to be in the same sense as Teddy Roosevelt, so I appreciate that, Chris. He seems 
unique in that no experience seemed to, he wasn't afraid of many experiences. And what I, what I mean by that is like rallying a volunteer militia just would never happen with a politician today. And his time spent in nature and his conservation efforts, he had a range of experiences. Shameless plug for uh, the title of this podcast, but his range of experiences seemed to <laughs> seem, seem to, I, I don't know, can one of you help me better understand if those experiences uh, played into his political life or you think it just kept him sane or uh, if you have any stories uh, surrounding those less political aspects of Teddy. Yeah, I would say um, the idea that he kind of lived a couple lives is like totally on the nose. He grew up uh, from a pretty privileged background um, in New York is my understanding. And like his father was a very prominent uh, public figure. And one of my favorite stories about Teddy Roosevelt is he first got into politics at age 23 um, because the party bosses at the time were looking for um, a politician and they thought that they picked Teddy Roosevelt only because they thought like the Roosevelt name had a lot of um, appeal. And like, it's funny to think that like if the Roosevelt name had a lot of appeal back then, like they just had no idea what it would have meant um, like 50 years later. Um, and so uh, like that was kind of where he started. But then Garrett talked about this a little bit, his response to when after being in politics for a bit, um, his wife and his mom dying on the same day, he went to the Dakotas for, for years. Um, and he left kind of like a, he left in deep depression and having grown up, he was always a bit of a frail boy. Um, but he has this quote, which is one of my favorite quotes is that he thought that you could really make yourself into anything you wanted to be. Um, and his quote that he said about living in the Dakotas was, uh, become fearless by sheer dint of practicing fearlessness. And I thought it was pretty cool. Like he just put himself in so many, um, scary, just like really off the wall, risky situations that he built, he really did build himself up um, kind of over there while in the Dakotas. And he actually like, he gained 30 pounds and came back uh, by all accounts, really a changed man. Um, and having come back to then, that was only then did he like become president after this time. He kind of had this like newfound outlook on life where he realized just how impermanent everything was. Um, I guess having people so, people so close to you die um, will do that to you. Um, but then he was also able to connect with really different parts of the, I don't know, the population, the electorate, um, being able to having come from privilege, but then also having lived a life out on the plains, really like the great, the great West. Um, so that's kind of where that, like the cowboy comes from, uh, this cowboy image of him. Um, and so I think there's a lot of truth to that. So he really did. He is really someone who I think benefited from range. Just to add on to that specifically, um, he had this real, connection with nature that few other presidents have. Um, I think he, over the course of his time in office, um, produced something like 50 um, bird preserves, 150 national forests, um, designated a lot of um, land in the West for national parks. Um, he worked with Gifford Pinchot, who was the first head of the United States Forest Service all in the name of conservationism. And he, even in office at times, I think went into the wilderness and did not give any way for people to contact him, which is <laughs> remarkable, but speaks to his uh, 
desire to connect with the natural world in a very spiritual way. I think as a boy, he also um, was very interested in entomology and specifically studying bugs and characterizing them. Um, so he was always just, very... Sorry to interrupt, but just a note on that point. Um, when he was at Harvard, actually, he had yeah. stuffed lizards um, kind of on the shelves of his dorm room just because he was so interested in kind of the biology of different animals. But continue, Garrett. Matt, I think we should uh, add that in our common room. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think at least one or two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, I think all of those things together influenced who he was, specifically his hardship growing up with asthma, um, made him want to overcome this real sort of um, natural barrier that he had built in. And so he would do these absolutely punishing workouts and leave himself basically unable to breathe because he wanted to overcome this so badly. And I think that that translated into his natural empathy for people who were under similarly oppressive contexts. That's not to say he was necessarily the most progressive on all issues. Um, although he wasn't necessarily the worst on race at the time, there were certain statements that he made that pretty clearly showed that he, um, was harbored these kind of racial prejudices against African-Americans in particular. But in general, compared to the political establishment of the day, he really cared. And I think that that's the, the big thing that I always think about with Teddy. He wanted people to apply themselves and make sure that everything that anyone wanted to do, they could do if they could apply themselves hard enough. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that that's one of the most admirable things about Teddy, for me at least. Yeah, I would say the little bit of research I've done is just been inspiring. And I hate that word because I think it's fleeting and it's very short term. You can have inspiration and motivation one day, but it's gone the next. But his example and the... the uh, the trials he went through and over overcame, especially from a young age. I had no idea that he he was really a self-made man physically. He turned turned his body around from crippling asthma to I, I just know he was part of the boxing club at Harvard, um, which is uh, has some. They're very made, proud to but, tell everyone um, that he was part of the boxing club at Harvard. Every every email <laughs> they send, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I have been since freshman year. I've not gone, but I always, I always tell really? myself I will. Yeah. Wow. I think we should stop by a Harvard Boxing Club meeting next fall. Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. And the three of us go in there with our our uh, Teddy Roosevelt knowledge and pay homage yeah. to Chris to Garrett. Him. You might. I don't know if it's what, Chris is very, has gone on record saying that he would um, beat up all of our roommates in a fist fight. Uh, and it wouldn't be particularly close. <laughs> Interesting. While you're all, going I don't think it matters. I think he can take on us one on four. Yeah. Really? He thinks that you all. He's going okay. To clear my name, and yes, I will <laughs> for saying that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm very, very uh, proud to have a father from Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, the boxing capital of the state. At I'm least, fact checking uh, that. Where Keep going. they have. Yeah, Brockton. Yeah, I'm telling you, they're the Brockton Boxers, and they have 
a statue of the boxer Rocky Marciano outside their football stadium. How does, how does Philly uh, feel about that? And it, we, how does Philly feel about that? That, that seems like a little bit of cultural appropriation on your part. <laughs> 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 well, it was in his, uh, in his DNA to learn how to box and he's, uh, thus passed down uh, a little bit of knowledge to me. And I feel like that little bit of knowledge would take me, take me far in a fight against <laughs> our, uh, our roommates. But um, on a more academic note, uh, we don't only talk about fighting in our room. We actually talk about, talk about other, other things. Um, and one of those is, is books. And Matt, I uh, thank you for recommending leadership in turbulent times where it seems like a few of these stories and anecdotes yeah. <laughs> come from. Um, and I have to share a story of Matt Thomas invited uh, during summer vacation, invited me and our other roommate, Buddy Hayward, out to his house. And one morning I got up and he has two copies of this book, Leadership. And one all of his notes are in pencil. And then in the right-hand copy, he's transcribing the notes page by page in, I think it was blue pen. And Matt, please explain yourself. What were you doing I'm ready for this. with two copies of the same book? Um, please, the floor First is yours. First off, I have to say, um, I, I did recommend that book to you. I only knew about it because Garrett recommended it to me. Um, Garrett, I don't think he's even read it, but he still recommended it. Um, I, <laughs> I, saw her, I saw her speak at uh, HKS and that was good enough for me. Okay, fair enough. So I really appreciate, I really do appreciate the recommendation. I love that book. So when Garrett, Garrett, I think is much smarter than I am. So when he tells that. me, well, no, when he talks, I listen. So he told me to read this book. So I was like, okay, great. And this was like right at the end of last, last uh, sophomore year. So like in April, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to read this book, but I bet I checked it out from the Harvard library and they said, oh, just return it in September. I was like, great. So I'm like reading this book. I like read it during our regional games in Oklahoma City for our baseball team. It was awesome. And I like got to, the, I got like 15 pages in and I was trying to like take notes on my computer because I feel like I don't understand books if I don't take notes on them. And then I was like, this is ridiculous. I need to annotate this book. But then you like, you can't do that with the Harvard library book. So I was like, you know what? Okay. I'm going to take notes in a really light pencil and then figure it out later. <laughs> so like, sure enough, like I'm taking notes in like really light pencil on this book. And it's like, it has these quotes from Teddy Roosevelt, Dave Lincoln, like, and FDR and LBJ. These, it's like so inspiring to read. And it's like unbel these unbelievably fun facts and anecdotes. And so I'm like, okay, I really need to figure something out. So I get home um, on, over summer break and I'm like, I need to treat myself. Um, it's been a long sophomore year, you know, try to, try to work grinded in the classroom, student athlete lifestyle. Um, so then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy this book. So I bought another copy of the book um, and I got it mailed to my house. And at that point I'd read like 250 pages of the book um, and annotated in, in pencil. So I was like, oh man, um, okay. I then would like go through and transcribe the notes from my <laughs> Harvard library copy into my personal copy and then like erase the notes in the Harvard library copy. So they wouldn't know that I, that I sold their book, um, which was like brand new. And I don't think anyone had checked out before I'd ever, before I'd done it. Um, so I hope, hopefully no one at Harvard Widener library hears this podcast. Uh, oh, otherwise I'm sending I'm, it straight to them. They have a feedback form. Yeah, um, great, great. Yeah. So then, um, so yeah, sure enough, that is how, that is how and why I had two copies of this book. 
I feel like, Matt, are we in AP Lit? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm two chapters in. Well, Garrett, you wouldn't know because you've never read it, but I'm two wow, chapters right. in, and I can uh, <laughs> attest to it is uh, worthy of every note Matt put into into the book yep. um, and the margins. And there was arguably just as, well, it wasn't necessarily the length of his notes on the margins because, yes, I did read it. Um, read some of his notes, but they're, they're very punchy. Um, <laughs> his, notes, his notes on the margins were, they were pretty funny to a lot of yes, exclamation point, yeah. um, and, and the like. Um, Garrett, do you have any, any unique, uh, or I won't say weird, but uh, unique uh, styles of attacking, attacking what you're, what you're studying? I, uh, well, Garrett, only, Garrett only writes in capital letters. Fun I fact. do. This is true. I, I only write in caps. Um, so ever since junior year of high school, I realized my capital letters were more legible than lowercase. So just made the switch over. It looks like I'm shouting, but it's faster <laughs> and better. Um, Garrett, what about your? What about the uh, the Google Doc you shared? You blessed <laughs> oh, with yeah. Matt and I. Um, if you want to, you want to touch on that. Sure thing. Yeah. Um, I, since about freshman year, I think, uh, started realizing that in my history readings, I was just coming across the wildest facts and I didn't want to forget them because they were either so surprising or interesting, um, or some just plain funny that I wanted to be able to remember them. So I started just a notes document on my phone um, of all the things that I was reading. That quickly turned into a, a five-page document uh, of various facts. So I can give some of my favorites here. Um, one is in classical music, you think of these kind of straight-laced old guys who have like powdered wigs and whatever else. Um, when you think of classical music, but you really don't realize how weird and, you know, some of them actually insane they were. Um, for instance, Mozart produced a canon, which he called Lick My Ass. And that did well <laughs> enough, apparently, that he wrote a sequel called Lick My Ass Nice and Clean. Oh, my God. So, can, we, can we fact check that? Uh, yeah, there. there's, a, there. there's a Wikipedia page on it. He sent it to me before. Do we yeah. trust this Wikipedia page? Like, did Gary uh, make this Wikipedia page and publish it under uh, a different name? That'd be a long. I time. wouldn't. I would not put it past him. Um, <laughs> I think it's. I think Mozart. What was he? German? Austrian? Oh God! Uh, I probably. Uh, yeah, he's Austrian. The title. The title is in um, a different language and then translated into English. So unless Garrett like learned another language to no, yeah, craft true. this, it's true. It's yeah. I will, I will concede that. The big thing about this notes document is I do not swear by any of the sources, but it's more fun that way. <laughs> yeah, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. That's what I'm saying. Yes, sir. Now, yeah, do you have anything to add, Matt? Um, on top of Garrett's um, fun facts. Um, no, I think, I think Garrett uh, pretty much has cornered the market on just stories that you just cannot believe. Um, but yeah, it makes for some really fun lunch conversations. I think one that I wanted to add about Teddy Roosevelt is, um, well, one of the reasons I like him so much is so like he was Batman. I swear. Just like listen to the story and tell me he wasn't Batman. So when he was the police commissioner of, uh, New York city, he, his job was like to run the entire police department. 
Um, but what he was worried about was that the cops who would do the overnight shift weren't really doing their job. And so he'd go on these things called midnight rambles. Um, and what he'd do is he'd like walk around the city disguised, trying to find his cops and see if they were like doing their jobs. Um, and so apparently at one point, um, like well deep into the night, he walks into this oyster bar and finds a couple of his, of his cops off duty. Um, and he's sitting there disguised and he's like, Oh, why? Like he inquires, like, why aren't you guys on the streets? Why aren't you doing your job? And they are pretty like, they're annoyed and insulted that he even asked questions. They're like, who are you? Like, you're not commissioner Roosevelt. And he goes, sure enough, I am. And so I just think he's Batman because that is exactly what Batman would do. Right. He just like, he patrols the streets. So now all of a sudden all these other cops hear this story and they're like, well, um, if we don't, if we are, you know, uh, if we're doing something we shouldn't be doing at midnight and not kind of on our post at 2 a.m., um, who's to stop Commissioner Roosevelt from coming up and finding us? And I don't know. I feel like it, my favorite movie is The Dark Knight. I talk about it way too much. I made Chris watch it with me. Um, but that's the whole thing. It's like these, these, all the mob dealers are afraid that Batman's going to come find them if they do any criminal activities at night. So the Batman cleaned up the streets, and he, it turns out Batman was just stealing Teddy Roosevelt's strategy. So I, that's, I think, my fav- one of my favorites. Matt, what's your favorite Batman movie? Uh, the Dark Knight. Interesting. Okay. My favorite movie of all time. Matt has been one of my best friends for the better part of three years and has pleaded with me to watch The Dark Knight. <laughs> and I am just not a superhero guy. Regardless, in our uh, last week before we were sent home, I sat down for the two and a half hours to watch Dark Knight with Matt and another teammate. And I'm very glad I did. I now get that reference. I get why Matt Thomas loves this movie. Oh, you're um, a convert. I'm a convert. Okay. Uh, and I'm not surprised that he is making connection between Teddy Roosevelt and Batman. So thank ba- you. Batman thank applies you to everything. No, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you having the open mind to finally watch it. Yeah, very open after three yeah. years. No, I'm telling you, Batman applies to everything. Like the third movie is the plot of the coronavirus contagion. Like you can look it up. You can look it up. I have a lot of time on my hands. I might have to, uh, might have to indulge in another. Could you Batman not movie. just watch the movie Contagion? That's very fair. That's very fair. Kind of not switching gears, but more uh, circling back to some themes I heard throughout this uh, short discussion. It seems like you guys are both very fun. I know Matt is, and Garrett. It seems like you are as well very fond of historical quotes. Oh, absolutely. Matt has quotes littering his walls. I've stolen the idea and have put some of my favorite quotes on sticky notes uh, next to my door. Um, And I was wondering if there are any historical quotes and now they can be lighthearted or they can be ones you find yourself going back to more often than others, whether that's in times of adversity uh, whether that be in school or relationships or otherwise, um, if you have any historical quotes that you'd like to share. Yeah, I mean, I don't even have to leave the, the domain of Theodore Roosevelt to give you my favorite. Um, he gave this speech a couple times um, called The Man in the Arena. Um, and I can sort of reel it off pretty quickly. It is not the critic who counts not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, 
who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That, to me, is something that is captured in few other quotes. It's not the idea that failure is something to celebrate, which I think is kind of the mantra of Silicon Valley these days. I'm from Palo Alto originally. Um, and I see that a lot. That's not what this quote was about. Here, Teddy's saying failure is to some extent inevitable. And it's not something that we should strive for, obviously. Um, but in the end, there are going to be a lot of people who break you down and who criticize you from the outside. That's not important. What's important is that you're applying yourself. And even if you fail, you know that you gave it your best shot and you couldn't have done any better than what you did. Um, and so when I'm thinking about who I want to be and um, the mission in life that I have, I often return to that quote and, and think about what exactly Teddy was stressing in that moment um, and take some solace in that fact. Yeah, Garrett, I think you would like to hear that. We, uh, we get to see that quote every, every day we walk through the halls of uh, Dylan Fieldhouse going into the uh, athletics building. Really? Um, yep. And I t- stole it from Matt Thomas who touches that quote every single day when we uh, walk into walk into the building of our locker room. So Matt, would you, that's, that's true, right? Yep. That's very true. That's I stole that from Noah Zavallis. Um, yeah, it's, I, 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 <laughs> I love that quote so much. I think it is also one of my favorite all time. Um, I try to make my Instagram handle, um, Matt in the arena, which is about <laughs> like, it's somehow not, might not even be the nerdiest thing I said on this podcast. Uh, but sure enough, someone beat me to it and it's taken. However, um, when I create a TikTok account, it was not taken. So if you want to look me up on TikTok, Matt in the arena, hit me up. But yeah, that's, that quote is awesome. Uh, LeBron James has even referenced that quote before, like in press conferences. Yeah. Um, it is, it is really kind of like everything you could look for. Um, in any moment of self-doubt. I can't believe or... you bastardized the quote by applying Teddy Roosevelt to TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I think, uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what he would think about TikTok, but maybe he would not be so, so amused. Uh, but yeah, that Garrett, great, great call right there. That, that really is one of my favorites too, if not, if not number one. Um, but yeah. What else is up there for you? um there's mark twain i think has some of the greatest quotes greatest quotes going i think one of my favorite one of my favorites of his that's like actually uh makes i i don't i've tried to look it up and figure out the context of it but um that didn't even really clear it up it's he said that once that cauliflower is nothing but cabbage with a college education (laughs) (laughs) can i get a a matt thomas analysis on that guy um well I can't quite analyze it, but I like to think that I myself am in the process of going from cabbage to cauliflower, um, getting this college education. Wow. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, no. So in moments of when I, I'm really kind of like down on my luck at, at school and really maybe it's late night in the library or what have you, um, I just remind myself that I am becoming cauliflower. Um, and it gets me through the time, tough times. Um, but yeah, he, uh, Mark Twain is a, has a million great quotes. Um, some of if them, you guys, you have to be careful though. Cause some of them are people apocryphal. Yeah. yeah. Totally apocryphal. 
yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but <laughs> the I, another great one is the more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. Great one. <laughs> um, yeah. Then I think he's like, he's something, I don't know if you guys heard this one, but it's never argue with a stupid person. They'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I love that one. But Mark Twain, I don't know. I, I can't say if any of these are totally true or not, but um, yeah, Mark Twain is Absolutely. one of my favorites in addition to the man in the arena quote. I would say Matt Thomas becoming a cauliflower is, is a pretty, <laughs> pretty good way pretty good way to wrap up um but yeah i feel i feel like we've touched on a lot i know i've learned a lot from from your guys uh explanations of teddy roosevelt uh so thank you for that if there is anything else you would like to talk about please let's keep this casual and uh feel free to bring up bring up anything anything now Chris, can you can you share one of your favorite quotes? Yeah, with yeah us? I was gonna. That's true. I was gonna ask you. Yes, I can. I would say every day, uh, like I stole this from you, Matt. Uh, I have sticky notes of quotes that I really enjoy, um, and one of my favorites is "With the exercise of self trust, new powers shall appear," um, and that's a Emerson quote from Self Reliance, and it just reminds me that I already have the tools to overcome anything that comes my way. And, um, sometimes I just need a little reminder of, of self-trust. The, uh, I've been given the toolkit, um, and I just got to utilize it. So, uh, that one is short and sweet, um, and hits home. So, yeah, I mean, Matt, maybe you can touch on how quotes have, really shaped how you attack your days. I know for me, when I go to a historical quote, whether that's this Emerson quote or a quote from somebody like Marcus Aurelius, who was the most powerful man in the world. And we can take a little bit of his wisdom. Did you guys read meditation to us? Chris did. Oh, dude. I did. Incredible book. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Stoic philosophy. And I came across in my research that on one of Teddy Roosevelt's trips to, I want to say Africa, he brought eight books. And one of them was Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and the other one was Epictetus. So a man well-versed in Stoic philosophy. There you go. Seems to be able to attack any challenge that comes his way voracious reader teddy was yeah right. one book a day while in office one book a day i think that's that's what i've heard i mean very easy to exaggerate that but yeah <laughs> that's unbelievable wow now let me ask you guys what are you dr seuss so you guys are currently really reading what an lb a book on lbj is that what i heard oh god yeah how much time do you have man um <laughs> we could talk about this for a while yeah. please there is a. Uh, Zoom has blessed us with unlimited minutes on this conversation. So please take it away, Garrett. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a biographer named Robert Caro who originally got his start by profiling um, the, I think commissioner of transportation in New York named Robert Moses. Um, 
who basically became the most powerful person in New York just by building highways. If you're driving on a highway in New York, it was built by Robert Moses. Um, and so Caro exposed it and created this, you know, thousand page book called the power broker that did so well. Um, and since then he, for the last four decades now, almost has dedicated the rest of his career to studying LBJ and understanding him from an insider's perspective. Um, he tells this story about how LBJ growing up was dirt poor. He would pull with his brother, the yoke of their plow through the fields um, in hill country in Texas, which is known for its terrible soil. Um, and there's basically nothing that you can grow there that will reliably hold. Um, and from that point, then he makes a promise to himself that he's going to get out and accomplish something. Um, and then he goes off to a teacher's college and works with immigrant kids who are going to school. And at night he can hear them um, and the trucks that are shipping them off to work in fields and he'll never see them again. And he makes a promise to himself then. And he says, if I ever get in a position of power, I'm going to help those little boys and girls. From there, he goes through the House of Representatives and has what many assume to be a stolen election, um, makes his way to the Senate, controls basically all the finances in the Senate, um, and ingratiates himself with Southern leadership such that he is able to um, push through a compromise Civil Rights Act in, I think, 1957 or 58. Um, 57, yeah. 57. Then becomes the vice president and he kind of feels isolated because he just lost everything that he had built in the Senate um, and is alienated by the Kennedy clan. Finally decides he's going to make the best of it and takes Kennedy on a tour of Texas. And then he finally takes him to Dallas where Kennedy's assassinated. And so LBJ wakes up the next day and he says, I am going to make civil rights legislation the crux of my platform. And he does that and passes the most significant civil rights legislation this country's ever known. So uh, Garrett and I, did, long story short, or have decided to read these biographies Carol has written about LBJ. Um, and we just started a couple of days ago. And I think there are four of them out now. He's working on a fifth. Um, the first one is, I think, 750 pages. So we might, <laughs> we got some time on our hands in quarantine, um, and this is how we, we might spend a whole lot of it. Are there any other books you've read recently in recent memory that you would, that you would recommend or that have stuck out as particularly impactful? Uh, yes. I, the, I mean, the title, another plug for the podcast, I just kind of <laughs> finished and reread Range. Um, that book is phenomenal. There, it just, it's so gratifying um, in that like one of my our other roommate who read it told me is like, he's like, this is the best argument for liberal arts education I've ever heard. Um, but it's especially nice to hear now when um, like we're all soon enough going to have to make up our minds about what we want to do in the world um, and just realizing just how much value there is into in experimenting and not knowing um, and second guessing yourself how that can really be a positive thing or sometimes making mistakes can really end up shaping your career for the better. Um, just, trying the thesis is that like every experience you build on um, a generalist triumph over specialists in that they have experience from all these different domains um, that really help them become better critical thinkers and problem solvers um, than people who specialize 
pretty narrowly in just one subject. Um, I also just reread The Outsiders, which I hadn't read since seventh grade. And I found my seventh grade book of The Outsiders that we had to read in English class. And sure enough, I made the same kind of bizarre annotations back then. Um, spelled a lot of words wrong. Pretty disappointed in my 13-year-old son. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I just like forgot letters. Like I would write going without the N. Like I wasn't even, I don't know what I was doing. Like maybe I was in a hurry, I, but it was bad. But yeah, I would highly recommend that book. Great book. Talk about good quotes. Stay gold, Robert Frost. Stay gold, pony boy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll go back. So I, I've also been going back to old fiction books that I was, uh, had to read in uh, middle school and high school. And so maybe, maybe outsiders is on that list. I did, I was going through, I was cleaning my bookshelf and I found it. So I have the copy I read. I want to say I read it in my eighth grade class. Um, Mr. Gagney, he, recommended it as a pleasure reading book for me. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll, uh, dust that guy off and I can't not thank you, Matt, for, uh, recommending range to me as well. I, uh, read your copy. So it is a well-read, well-read book. So um, to the traveling I, Matt Thomas books over here. This is the ra- traveling. And I took notes on index cards because really God forbid I touched his copy of, uh, <laughs> of range. But that was an absolute experience uh, reading an entire book annotated by Matt Thomas. And there would be nights that we would, I would ask you about those and then you would go off. Um, yeah. Those no. are some of the, some of the most fun, most fun, uh, relaxing nights. What are, what are your guys' favorite books? Fiction, nonfiction, any of those? I mean, mine right off the top of my head, the book, the only book that I've consistently read multiple times and have gifted friends is uh, meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Like that fundamentally changed my outlook on life. Um, and I know it's kind of having a moment right now, stoic philosophy and I don't care. I'm glad it is. <laughs> um, I don't know about you, Matt. Yeah. Um, I don't know. See, I have like a definitive favorite movie and I'm proud to say it's the dark Knight. I just don't know if I have a definitive favorite book. Um, one that I do really love is The Martian, which was made into a really great movie starring Matt Damon, Matty D. Um, Boston. Thank Boston. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, he, uh, so the book is, is, I think like somehow even miles better. I love the movie. The book is so great. It's like not only hilarious, um, very, very well written and very, uh, very quick read, but, I don't know, there's this passage at the end where they talk about like, kind of like what's the value of a human life and why if for no one, so people haven't seen the book and read the movie, it's this man gets stranded on Mars and there's this whole like global coordinated effort through all these governments coordinated to try and rescue him. And so like he talks about why everyone even went to all the trouble of trying to rescue him. Um, and that's something that always stuck with me is he like just talking the, the value of hope and the value of a human life um, is something that I really, I've, reread before um and i really really enjoy and just this whole idea of like his method of problem solving there's a scene where matt damon does it really well i don't even know if that scene's in the book but um he talks about just like moving from one problem to the next and overwhelming tasks you can you can make manageable and you can do unbelievable things i mean i know it's a work of fiction so it really is unbelievable but i I think that's why i love that book so much yeah there's um a great have you guys seen 
I mean, you probably haven't because it's got a dozen hours long. Um, Ken Burns, a Civil War documentary. No, yeah, um, there's a great vignette that Burns presents of Ulysses Grant um, in the midst of some battle. It, for the first three or four years of the war, Lincoln just had the same problem of generals not being willing to fight, um, particularly with George McClellan and others. And he finally finds one guy, Ulysses Grant, who's willing to fight and you know put men on the line um, and actually score victories for the North. And there's this scene where Grant, after losing thousands and thousands of his men one day, goes into his tent at the end and just breaks down and starts sobbing. Um, and gets up the next day and does it again. And so when you're, you were talking, Matt, about um, being able to sort of get up and go and make the decisions that need to be made, even if they're hard, um, I thought back to that moment and specifically kind of the importance when you're a leader of having that internal drive and passion to do what's right, even if you're only 51% sure and you know that there's a 49% chance that um, things will not turn out the way that you planned yeah well said well said very well said gary is there another book that stands out to you that you'd like to plug or that has it seems like you've been able to take bits and pieces from everything you've come across yeah um, but well, i was wondering so if there's anything i do i mean i think it's funny that you mentioned range i think of myself as a generalist as much as possible um so I will flex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I will like read a bunch of book summaries rather than say sitting down for an individual book. But in terms of my favorite books, I would say fiction would be the grapes of wrath. Um, I'm a huge Steinbeck guy, California represent. Um, yes, sir. And then nonfiction, either the Protestant ethic by Weber, just because it basically invented sociology and, political science more generally, um, or The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, which is a story of the first months of World War I and an analysis of how things unfolded the way that they did. Um, this woman had like no formal history training, but she wrote this book and it just overnight became a sensation. Um, and I think she won the Pulitzer or some other major award for it. Um, really, really great piece of history so highly recommend to anyone who hasn't checked that out yet seems like we have a little book lineage uh matt thomas recommends books to me garrett walker helps recommend books to matt um yep. so they're trickling down to me and i appreciate the one-to-one -one, uh direct recommendations from you i now have uh a nice little catalog to uh, work the triangle. Through. give me give me some recommendations man i got nothing but time now Beautiful. I think we can, we can make that happen. Like I said, if there are any parting thoughts, um, we're just around the hour mark, um, which is, which is fantastic. Um, thank you guys for your time and your insights. Um, and just, just sharing with me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Chris, honored to be the first guest on the range project. Um, yeah, I just I'm proud that I'm proud you had enough faith in me to put us on a mic for an hour. Hopefully, some of it was useful. No, I I had nothing but faith. If any amount of our late night conversations uh, could be translated to a podcast, I think that would be 
that would be a success. And I, I think we did that a little bit of justice today. Absolutely. It's a little tough, a little tough on zoom. The, uh, we made it work, but we made it work. No doubt. We, uh, we had an obstacle and we, we overcame just like, yes, sir. <laughs> well said. Well, gentlemen, it's probably about dinner time. Uh, your time, Matt, I'm creeping up on my bedtime. It's currently oh nine God. twelve at night. Do you have the do you have the lights dimming down on low yet, or are they still? They're about to dim down on low. I'm putting on my blue light glasses. Absolutely no blue light <laughs> uh, coming into these into these eyeballs as I prepare for a wonderful wonderful night rest. God forbid you make it past ten p.m. <laughs> God forbid is right. Well, boys, been an absolute blast. Glad we had some laughs while talking about talking about what you guys love the most history so thank you again yeah great stuff chris uh this is a blast thank you absolutely all right cheers we made it episode one complete i appreciate you making it this far be on the lookout for a link in the description for show notes covering all the books and people discussed today until episode two be well and stay healthy peace What's up?